Please open your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, you'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text we'll be looking at this morning on the back of the notes. And we'd like to begin by reading these 12 verses. John 7. This is on the great day, the last day, the Feast of Booths. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus stood up and he gave his invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he promises that those who do, those who believe in him, as the scripture says, out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This morning, we'll look at the variegated response the confusion, the division, the the numerous ways different peoples react to interpret Jesus. Let's read John 7, 40 to 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, the one who was was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Lord God, as we consider these responses, we pray that you would um, increase the faith in our hearts, that we might respond not as the Pharisees, not as the fickle people, but with hearts of faith, um, that we would receive the Lord Jesus as the prophet, as the Christ, that we might learn from these responses. We rejoice to confess indeed no one ever spoke like this man. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll remind you of where we're at in John's gospel and and, and what is taking place. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 focus around Jesus speaking in the temple, going up to and then speaking in the temple during the Feast of Booths, a week-long harvest celebration that's focused on remembering God's past faithfulness to provide, celebrating God's present provision And looking forward and reminding us that all of our future needs and provision will come from his hand. And Jesus first stood up, if you look at 7.14, about the middle of the feast, and he spoke. And the pattern is Jesus speaks, there's some response from the people, Jesus may interact with that, and then there was a failed attempt to arrest him. Well, the same pattern happens here as well. If you look on verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up. And two weeks ago, we simply looked at these three verses of Jesus' invitation, how it's open to anyone and everyone. The only condition, the only thing you must have to bring to Jesus is thirst, is need. 
That's the only condition. What's the cost of Jesus wanting him? That's the cost. What are the requirements? That you have nothing and you recognize it. That's the requirements. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus promises superabundant provision, ultimately fulfilled in the gift of the Holy Spirit. So now in these last verses of chapter seven, how, how do the people respond? What's the result? What's the reception of Israel to their Messiah? And you can see in the text in the first four verses, 40 to 44, the word some and others occurs four times. There may be overlap between these groups. Some said this, some said that, others said this, some said this. But, but we've got at least four groups. And some of the people in the groups might have their foot in more than one group. I'm not suggesting these are clearly delineated lines, but the summary of the whole section is in verse 43. There was division among the people over him. And so John gives us four different responses. Possibly some people espousing more than one of these um, over the course of the feast, over this last day. So we're going to look at this, four, four responses. And he begins with positive responses, responses of, of fledgling faith. And then, then we get to bad responses. So the first response we see, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Now I'll remind you, you know this, who the prophet is. We've looked at Deuteronomy 18 probably a dozen times. I'll read it for you. But in Deuteronomy 18, Moses writes on behalf of the Lord that the Lord promises, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And even though John's gospel has looked at the title Messiah, I would suggest that the dominant messianic title in John's gospel thus far that's been up for consideration is the title of the prophet. As early as chapter one, when they sent people to question John the Baptist, are you the prophet? So this is a central issue. Um, and this first group of people hearing Jesus' words, this is indeed the prophet. And that's part of what Jesus has been highlighting in his teaching, in, in his instruction, in a harvest festival, looking back to God's provision to the people in the wilderness under Moses, where he fed them manna from heaven, where they drank water from a rock. Jesus feeds the people in chapter six with miraculous food, saying that he himself is the bread come down from heaven. And now he talks about uh, rivers of water issuing forth. Perhaps some of these people are making these connections or as we'll see, perhaps they notice something unique and authoritative about Jesus' words. I'm not exactly sure why they came to this conclusion, but some people do the math properly. This is indeed the prophet, good for them. And for us reading, yes, yes, that's right. That's right, this is indeed the prophet, you're blank, like Moses. The prophet like Moses. Then we get to the second response. Some said, this is the Christ. And Christ, of course, is a Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah or Messiah, which in English means anointed. So again, Christ, Messiah, and anointed are Greek, Hebrew, and English for the same thing. Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Lord's anointed. We just said the same thing in three languages, that's all. And so they're identifying him as the ultimate 
promised anointed one. In the Old Testament, turn to Psalm 2 quickly, quickly. Um, probably one of the clearest messianic, messianic sections. As, as the Lord sends gifted people, judges, prophets, his spirit comes upon them. And as we saw two weeks ago, the spirit coming upon people is often used in liquid terms, anointing, pouring. And even as Saul is the Lord's anointed, that's why David won't reach out his hand to strike him. How dare he take down the Lord's anointed? We begin to see a very special anointed. The anointed is coming. The Messiah. And Psalm 2 makes that clear. Let's just read some of Psalm 2 here. This is going to tie together some themes that will also come out later in our passage. Um, so j just to try to show some of the biblical antecedent Old Testament texts, expecting what might they mean by the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, against his Christ. There's, there you are. There's, there's your Messiah, Christ. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So Psalm 2 makes it clear. The one who will come, the anointed of the Lord, is also the Lord's king. And then in verse 7, the, the presumably this king, this anointed speaking, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings of the earth, be warned. The rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And Psalm 2 makes it clear the coming anointed, the coming Christ is also the coming king, is also the coming son of God. So Psalm 2 really uniting a bunch of messianic themes. So when they say this is the Christ, I think they mean at minimum, this is who Psalm 2 spoke of, which is absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Some said, this is the Christ. Now, it's interesting. The Jews of Jesus' day don't necessarily understand that the Christ is also the prophet. Remember back in chapter 1 when they questioned John the Baptist? They asked me, the Christ? He did not deny but confessed, I'm not. Well, are you the prophet then? So they hadn't necessarily put together that the coming prophet like Moses was also the Messiah. So it might be these two groups think there's two potential offices Jesus holds we would recognize, well, he's both. Which one of them is right? Yes. Some said, this really is a prophet like Moses. Some said, this is the Christ. Some people are beginning to get it. Good. Now, where the focus of the text goes to is actually the negative side. So we learned there is some positive response. We'll pick this back up a little later in chapter 8 when we read um, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, which may grab up some of this group. But for now, our focus is going to go now from beginning faith, positive responses, to the more negative responses, starting first with sort of in-between responses. In response to this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? 
So there's division among the people over him. Others said that Christ was to be born of David in Bethlehem. Now there's some irony here and some complexity here. On the one hand, here's your first blank, they are informed, they're absolutely right with their biblical teaching. Does the Bible teach the Messiah, the Christ, will be a Davidite? Yes, it does. Does the Bible teach in the Old Testament that the Messiah, the Christ, will come from Bethlehem? Yes, it does. Very quickly, I'm sure you know this, in God's covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel, and you'll notice, part of the reason we read Psalm 2, you'll notice that Psalm 2 picked up this promise. I'll just read to you verses 12 to 14. The Lord said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Side note, that's why we get both the genealogy of Joseph and of Mary in Matthew and Luke's gospel. Jesus gets his legal claim to the Davidic throne from his adopted father, Joseph, but the promise to David is explicit. There must be some, we, we would use the term genetics, that'd be a foreign idea, but there's, the Messiah must come from David's body. There has to be some continuity, and he gets that through his mother, Mary, who is also a Davidite. So the promise is specific. From your own body, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, get this next phrase. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, which is exactly what Psalm 2 is picking up. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the Davidic covenant is explicit. The Messiah, the coming king, whose kingdom will never end, has to come from David's body. They are completely correct in that premise. That is accurate. Good job. A plus. Their second claim, the Messiah has to not only come from David, but he has to come from David's city, Bethlehem, the house of bread. Interesting. The house of bread. Why would they think that? Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. So again, spot on. But notice the, the prophecy in Micah simply says he will come forth from Bethlehem. It doesn't say he'll be a, living there all his life, but he will come forth from Bethlehem. Absolutely. So they've, they're, they're informed in their biblical premises. They, they, like, wait a second. You're saying he's the Christ, but the Christ has to be a descendant of David, and the Christ has to come out of Bethlehem. And what they're tripping up is they think Jesus is a Galilean. And in some sense, he is. It's where he's currently residing. It's where he's currently operating out of. You see, even though they're informed biblically, the next blank, they're ignorant. They're ignorant. There's some irony here. Remember, um, go back in chapter 7. Go back to a few days earlier in the middle of the feast. The people stumble over them believing they know more about Jesus than they do. Look at verse... Um, 27. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Except some other people seem to know that he'll come from Bethlehem. There seems to be some confusion on this point. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me. And there's a sort of dubiousness here. You know me, but he's going to say, you really don't. 
You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus is indicating there is some legitimacy to your claim that you know where I'm from. I'm from Galilee. In another sense, you have no idea where I'm from. You don't know where I'm from. So yes, as far as it goes, is Jesus a resident of Galilee currently? Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. But they don't know he comes from the Father. And here, John is highlighting, they also don't know where he was born. There's a lot of ignorance, even with some truth. That can be dangerous, knowing some of the facts, some of the truth, but not all of it can be dangerous. These people, their biblical understanding is spot on. He's got to be a Davidite. He's got he's to hail from Bethlehem. And yet, rather than asking Jesus questions, I mean, these things can be found out. They kept, they kept very detailed genealogies and records. If you wanted to ask the question, are Joseph, are Mary descendants from David? That would be a matter that would not be, I don't think, difficult for them to establish. So it's, it's, it's not that they couldn't know. They're ready to pronounce judgment without doing the work to know. And this is again a theme in John's gospel of, of people being overconfident in their ability to see things, size things up. This goes back to Jesus' challenge to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, what makes you think you'd know truth if you saw it? What makes you think you're in a position where you would recognize truth? You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And here are these people, it, it, there's, there's some irony. The, the, we're going to see they've got a better biblical theology than the Pharisees. And yet, in their ignorance... They miss the mark. Some people rightly say, this is the Christ. And they say, whoa, whoa, it can't be the Christ. Christ doesn't come from Galilee. Christ is supposed to be descendant of David. Christ is supposed to be from Bethlehem. Maybe he's both. Maybe he is a descendant of David. Maybe he is from Bethlehem. And maybe he currently lives in Galilee. Have you thought of that? No, presumably. So the first group, this is the prophet. Second group, this is the Christ. Others challenge that the Christ was to be born of David in Bethlehem. Now point three, we've seen there is some sense they're informed and in another sense they're deeply ignorant. And point three, there's some irony here. I think John assumes we know the truth. Let, let, me, let me argue briefly why. Um, it, John has already in numerous places assumed, made reference to assuming his readers know things already about the narrative he's about to account. We remember in chapter 3, where he made this little aside, 324, John had not yet been put in prison. Nowhere in John's gospel are we told the account of John being put into prison. John's aside only makes sense if he assumes many or most of his readers are aware that eventually John the Baptist is thrown into prison. John 444, when he leaves the Samaritan village. Why does he leave? Well, John tells us, for he himself had already said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Except that's not recorded in John. It's recorded in Matthew. Or, even as late as chapter 6, Jesus turned and said to the twelve, with no introduction. So, at least three examples where John assumes we know things. He assumes he can reference the twelve, and the readers are tracking with him. They don't go, the twelve who? The twelve what? He assumes we know John the Baptist got arrested. And he assumes we know Jesus said at some point in his ministry, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. The reason I'm highlighting this is this. John doesn't answer this objection. And as far as the objection of these people goes, it's completely valid. 
It's a completely valid objection to say, hold up, the Messiah needs to be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah needs to be descended to David. This is the only mention of David in John's gospel. John never comes back to answer this. He never comes back to say, well, we know. He was. So either John has left hanging for his readers a legitimate or an apparently legitimate challenge to Jesus' Messiahship, or I think this is overwhelmingly more plausible, just as he assumes we know John the Baptist, just as he assumes we know about the 12, just as we assumes we know about the different sayings of Jesus, he assumes we know Jesus is really born in Bethlehem and that Joseph and Mary are descendants of David. I think it's unimaginable that John would leave a valid challenge to Jesus' messiahship in the text without answering it unless he assumes we are with him, right? Okay, that's, that's my last blank. So then, so then this reading is ironic. And having Jesus just questioned, are you really sure you know where I'm from? We now see in that irony, no, they don't. Jesus has challenged him. Look, judge with righteous judgment. Don't judge by appearances. You think you know where I'm from? You don't know where I'm from. And now we see confirmed, yeah, they don't. And you see the dangers of some biblical truth and some factual truth and assuming you have the whole truth and drawing conclusions from it. We see that. Which then culminates in this division and an attempt of some to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him which links back to 7.30. This is how the other day ended. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Now in 7.30, we're told because his hour had not yet come. Presumably, similarly, that's why no one arrests him here. This line of arrest then links to our next point from Jesus causes division among the people to Jesus causes division among the Pharisees. As we look at the officer's return, the officers return. John, as a good storyteller, set up some tension. And back in 732, a couple days earlier, we read, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And we're left wondering, especially if this is your first time reading, well, what happened? What type of conflict happened? How does he escape? Well, now we're going to find out. Now we return to it. The, the officers return. Their mission they had been sent to arrest Jesus. That's clear, right? So we read that the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. These would be temple guard, probably Levites, Jewish, fastidious priests sent to arrest Jesus. And here we are two or three days later, wherever you want to put the middle. Now we're no longer at the middle. We're at the last, the eighth day of the feast. They come back empty-handed. And there's also some irony here as well. Jesus has emphasized he was sent and commissioned by his father. He was given a work to do. And he insists in John 17 in his prayer, he's fulfilled his work. And he says he's going to return to his father, right? You're going to look for me in a little while. Verse 34, you'll seek me and you'll not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus is commissioned by his father to do work. He's on a mission. He will complete it. He will return to his father. Here's some guys who've been commissioned with a work. And they return empty-handed. It's kind of a bumbling farce contrast as we see the, uh, the Pharisees and the ones they sent and how they accomplished their mission. So they come back. They had been sent to arrest Jesus, and the Pharisees are indignant. Why didn't you arrest him? They want to know. They, want, they need an explanation. So we get from their mission to their explanation. And I love this sentence. I love this sentence. You're blank here. No man ever spoke like this man. I know the ESV just says no one, but I, I think part of 
what's going on here is there's some irony, some further um, irony. The literal reading, no man ever spoke like this man. It just sounds a little clumsy in English, and no one ever spoke like this man. And the reason I want to highlight that is because they're going to speak better than they know. Because Jesus is, of course, no mere man. Their explanation, no man ever spoke like this man. So first thing to notice, the words of the word amazed them. It's an odd explanation. You've sent, presumably, a number of guards sufficient to overpower an individual. They have the authority to arrest. They have the authority to detain in the temple. Jesus is in the temple. There's a legitimate division. You, you don't have to fabricate the claim that you're causing some sort of tumult, some sort of um, you know, hubbub in the temple during a feast day. You've got the jurisdiction. You've got sufficient manpower. They come back. Why didn't you arrest him? Just let the answer they give sink in. Well, because no one ever spoke like this man. What type of answer is that? How does that logic work? You, you, I'd imagine the Pharisees would say, great, bring him back anyway. But they're using this as their explanation for why they didn't lay a hand on him. No one ever spoke with this man. And, and the, the explanation is the power, the authority of Jesus' words shocked them. They'd never heard anything like it. This is one of the hallmarks of Jesus, what sets him apart from, from other teachers is the power of his words. You've seen in John's gospel, Jesus' insistence, my words are not my words, they're the words of him who sent me. Jesus is, after all, called the word of God. In the beginning was the word. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God at any time, but the only begotten son of the father who's at the father's side, he has, and then the Greek would mean something like translated. It's a linguistic term. Jesus has communicated Jesus is the word. We know from the other gospels that Jesus' teaching was unique. I'll read to you a couple examples. Mark 1.22, they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Luke 4.32, they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Jesus' words mark him out as unique. And these temple guard who know their Old Testament, and I don't even think they're in faith. I don't even think these are believers. Maybe there's a beginning of faith. But they recognize something distinct, and they are afraid to touch him. They're, they're afraid to lay hands on him. They're unsettled. They come back. And, and that's got to be some level of unsettledness, because we know the Pharisees are nasty, mean people. They're going to ridicule them. They're going to ridicule the crowd. And when Nicodemus stands up to say something, they're going to ridicule him. They would rather endure the attacks of the Pharisees than touch this one who no one ever spoke like. I think it's fantastic. It's amazing. And I just would remind you that we don't know what Jesus looked like. We aren't given descriptions. There are some people in the Bible who are given descriptions. We know that Eli was fat. We know that Absalom was handsome. We know that Saul was tall. We know none of these things about Jesus. Was he short? I don't know. Did he have a big nose or a small nose? What was his complexion like? I don't know. He had a seamless garment and he had a beard because they plucked it out. That's about all I know. And the emphasis biblically is not on how he looked, but how he spoke. And, and sometimes, especially if you're looking at paintings from the Renaissance time where they put Jesus in there, they'd always make him glow. 
And I get from an artistic standpoint you do that because you want to make the centerpiece of your picture stand out. But understand in John 7, they're looking for Jesus and they don't find him. The implication I get is unless Jesus is acting or speaking, he is indistinct from the crowd. I see no reason biblically to think you'd be able to spot him in a crowd unless he was speaking or acting. As if somehow you just tell. No, there's nothing about his form or appearance that made him stand out. He was made like us in every way. He got genetic material from his mother. The thing that makes Jesus stand out is not how he looked with that profile. You know, Nordic Anglo-Jesus, you've seen some of those paintings? Probably didn't look like that. The thing that marked him was his words, his words, his teaching. No one ever spoke like this man. The words of the word amazed them. In fact, turn to John 18. We're going to see the power of Jesus' words a couple chapters later. I won't even speculate when we're going to get to here, but it won't be soon. Although Lample's class might still be going on. Um, 18.5, when they come to arrest Jesus. 18.4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? This is the arrest. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Possibly just I am. The Greek I am includes the he implied. But if Jesus just wanted to say I am, he'd say exactly the same thing, ego me. So either I am he or I am. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground because no one ever spoke like this man. His word had power and authority. And they said, he said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered, I, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was spoken to fulfill the words that he had spoken of those of whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And Simon Peter, you go through, but Jesus just says, I am he, they fall to the ground. It's another testament, the power and authority of Jesus' word. These guards would rather endure the ridicule and the anger of the Pharisees than touch and lay a hand on this one whom no one ever spoke like. Another witness, might this be the prophet like Moses whom God would put his words in his mouth? I think so. I think so. And we also notice they spoke better than they knew. They spoke better than they knew because of course Jesus is no man, no mere man. No man ever spoke like this. They're, yes, amen. No man ever spoke like this. So now we move from the return of the officers to the Pharisees' seethe. The Pharisees see they are not happy. And they're going to they're gonna pour their venom out on all sorts of people. And, and what we're seeing is uniformly in all of this is the division, the tumult. The crowd's divided, and the Pharisees are flummoxed, and they're seething, and they're angry. And first, they're going to some, hurl some abuse at the officers. First, have you also been deceived? They don't like this report. They don't want Jesus to be anything particularly unique. This hails back to the accusation that's been spreading in chapter 7, um, back in uh, verse 12. There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. 
And we know from the other Gospels that that is one of the charges the Pharisees start laying at him. He's deceiving the people. He's deceiving the people. So they turn to the officers. Have you also been deceived? And then we notice that their standard is themselves. On what basis do they rebuke the Pharisee, the, the, the officers? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? They're their own measurement. John is giving us an insight into the corruption of the Pharisees. Again, in case you're tempted to think, oh, those poor Pharisees, they really were zealous. They really loved their Bible and they just missed it. It was an honest mistake. No, it was not. This is corruption through and through. Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? Now, again, to the reader of John's gospel, there's some deep irony because we know at least one of them named Nicodemus in John 19 will be a disciple of Jesus. He even begins to act here. We know, yes, yes. Yes, some of, the, some of the authorities, some of the Pharisees have believed. John 12 tells us that. Let me get to John 12. Nevertheless, 42, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So if you've read this, if you're going through your second time in John's gospel, when they say this, you're chuckling because you know <laughs> these guys are fools and they're ignorant. Yes, some of the Pharisees and the leaders have believed in him. But that's their, that's their standard. Why shouldn't you believe in Jesus? Well, because we haven't, they say. There's just marked arrogance. This isn't righteous judgment that Jesus called for. Remember back in 24, don't judge by appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. This is arrogance and anger. This is unreasonable. And then, after first mock rebuking the officers, they got some things to say about the crowd as well. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I mean, they, they alone are righteous. Everyone else can go to hell as far as they're concerned. I mean that literally. They're accursed. That's what it means to be accursed, to go to hell, to be condemned. These, these people are absolutely convinced that they are the standard of righteousness and whatever doesn't conform to them is accursed. We've also seen that the crowd is doing better biblical theology than the Pharisees are. They're connecting Messiah with, with Micah and Bethlehem and descendant to David. The crowd is actually evidencing they do know the law and they are trying to think through these things. Far better reasoning than we see here. Now, John's showing us the corruption of the Pharisees, which then leads us finally to point C, Nicodemus intercedes. Nicodemus intercedes. This is the second of three occurrences of Nicodemus in John's gospel, and his arc is a wonderful one. He begins as an unbeliever. Jesus tells him plainly. Some people want to imagine Nicodemus is showing up with a little seed of faith in John chapter 3. Jesus tells him plainly, if we tell you heavenly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if we tell you, I mean, sorry, I got it backwards. If we tell you earthly things, you do not believe, how will you believe if we tell you heavenly things? Now, Nicodemus is told plainly by Jesus to his face, you do not believe. And then here, we see some movement. And he's going to show up one more time in John 19. We're just going to take Jesus' body. 1939, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come by night to Jesus, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. He's willing to go public as a disciple and honor Jesus' body crucified. And so here, probably somewhere in between, we see him begin to speak up. Here's an interesting thought. The corruption of the Pharisees may well be what drove him to faith. 
Because he's got he's to conclude two things. He's got to conclude Jesus is who he says he is, and he's got to conclude the people who oppose Jesus are corrupt. Well, the Pharisees are doing a great job of proving that second point. So we're told he had previously heard Jesus speak. So perhaps he and the officers were, no one ever spoke like this man. Perhaps, don't know, perhaps Nicodemus in his inner heart is saying, oh yeah, oh yeah. One of the things that's great as you read through John 3, Nicodemus just shuts up by about verse 10. The teacher of Israel shuts up and Jesus just talks the rest of the way. It, one of the indications, perhaps, that he's getting convicted that he's not a fool. He's silent before the master. So he urges them then to give Jesus due process. He urges them to give Jesus due process. He simply asks a question. You wouldn't think this is a controversial question to the Pharisees. He says, does our law judge a man and not first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So far, the only interaction Jesus has had by the Pharisees is they sent Nicodemus to him. He had some interaction with some of the Jews in Jerusalem in chapter 5. They haven't actually had a chance to really question him, to speak to him, to hear from him. And so he brings up a very valid question. Might your judgment be premature? And remember, this is, go back to chapter, well, you don't need to go back, I'll read it to you. Chapter 3, Nicodemus is no small-time player in the Pharisees. There came a man of the Pharisees and Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he has civil power and religious authority. He's a Pharisee and he's a ruler. Jesus, in verse 10, calls him the teacher in Israel. So this is quite potentially the top, the grand mufti. This is the top dog of the Pharisees. He's not some new young pup in their group. Wherever he fits in their hierarchy is towards the top half. And he asks a reasonable question. And look at the, the venom and the contempt on their lips as they turn to one of their own, a secular ruler as well, the teacher in Israel, and they say to him, they ridicule the teacher of Israel. Are you from Galilee too? I mean, this is the type of petulant stuff children say. It's not a reasoned answer. Hey guys, I'm pretty sure that the law of Moses tells us not to do this. To which the... The, the keepers of the law, unlike the crowd that doesn't know the law is a curse, they say, what, are you from Galilee? I mean, we're seeing the infantile, petulant corruption of the Pharisees. This is not an honest mistake. These are wicked men, corrupt men, foolish men. Are you from Galilee too, they say. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now this is, this is, Ridiculous. Um, and I, I got to pause for a moment. Most of your Bibles, I'm guessing, after verse 52, have some sort of note. My ESV says the earliest manuscripts do omit, do not include 753 to 811. Um, my study, and we'll deal with this next week, my study of that is in agreement. I, I don't think the story of the adulterous woman belongs here. I think it interrupts the flow of the text. I'll, I'll show you why in a second. So they, they have this ridiculous charge. Search and see, no prophet comes from Galilee. Well, except for Elijah, Micah, Jonah, possibly Nahum, no prophet. I'll give you some of the references there. But more explicitly, because maybe they're just looking forward. Maybe all they mean is we are expecting no prophet who comes from Galilee. Maybe that's what they mean. 
mean, surely they can't be so ignorant as to know that these prophets came from the Galilean region. Maybe they just mean we're not expecting any prophet. Turn to Isaiah 9. Turn to Isaiah 9. Keep your finger here, but turn to Isaiah 9. For those of you who know uh, Handel's Messiah, this is a text, you know, put to music. For unto us a child is born. Right? This is that passage. Let's take a look at how it begins. Isaiah 9. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. And in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And if you skip over the passage of the adulterous woman, the very next verse after 752 would be 812. The Pharisees say, see, no prophet arises from Galilee. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. No prophet comes from Galilee, huh? That is a direct callback to Isaiah 9. Jesus is answering, he's clowning them. My brother-in-law is a pastor said. I like that. He's, I think they're clowning themselves. Infighting. Nope, nope. No prophet comes from Galilee. Well, there's the lineage of prophets from Galilee, but maybe they just mean we're not expecting any prophet. Well, Isaiah 9 seems to indicate somebody with a great light, and it links it with unto us a child is born. And Jesus, I believe, responding directly to them, I think 8.12 is the very next verse, says, whoa, 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 I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. So John shows us the corruption of the Pharisees, and I can't help but think this is part of what drives Nicodemus to faith in Jesus. God can sometimes use the evil of others to bring faith in others. As, as Nicodemus is feeling uncomfortable, he's potentially recognizing, you're right, no one ever spoke like him. And the Pharisees make it clear, it's either us or him. And then the Pharisees act in such a childish, petulant, wicked way. I'm guessing the decision to split with the Pharisees and become a public disciple of Jesus is only made easier because of the corrupt actions of his group. These are the many responses to Jesus he offers his gospel indiscriminately to all who thirst. To all who thirst. And I just would remind you that offer is, is still valid for any here, any who thirst. If you can recognize your emptiness, Jesus has come. Drink, receive forgiveness, and reconciliation with God. I'm going to call the worship team up for our closing song. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God. How wonderful is our Messiah. How great is he and mighty. He confounds his enemies. So Lord, we pray that you would give us faith that we would not grumble and plot and scheme like the Pharisees. That we would not um, judge the Lord Jesus prematurely with insufficient information like some of those in Jerusalem. But like those first groups, this is the Christ. This is indeed the prophet. We might have faith to recognize him for who he is, to receive him for who he is. 
that he would be our Christ, our sacrifice, our substitute, our prophet and lawgiver. And that we would be his people. In Jesus' name, amen.